want to dance like that. <laughs> Good morning, Millen Free. Hey, my name is Jeremy. Thanks so much for coming today. I know it's cold and snowy, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad to be here too. Um, let's pray, and we'll invite uh, the Lord to continue to worship with us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the uh, fount of every blessing that we have for our freedom, forgiveness of sins, for the fact that we can come here this morning in uh, whatever state we're in and still worship. We pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would cleanse our hearts and uh, draw our minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think it's possible you may have, depending on your experiences. If someone has, please tell me. But I don't think any of us have ever been out in the woods to watch a pack of wild wolves tear apart a recent kill. Has anyone ever done that before? No. I've seen it on TV, right? It's pretty cool. You watch National Geographic or any of these things, and there's the snow just like a day like today, and the wolves are hungry, and so they're prowling around. It's been a while since they've had a meal. And eventually they get a kill. They catch something. And you know what happens when you watch these wolves. Of course, they are hungry and they are aggressive and they're in a hurry. And so they're just attacking that game on the fresh snow and their teeth are chomping in and their lips are snarled back and their fangs are hanging out. And they're tearing off a piece of meat and then swallowing it before they even chew. If anyone gets near them, what do they do? <laughs> right? They snap. Why? Well, I think the reason is because they're afraid they're not going to get enough. They're already really, really, really hungry. And if they don't consume all they can in that moment, the wolf next to them is going to eat it. And therefore, they are afraid that they're going to have to go hungry. And that fear drives them to respond in a very negative, aggressive, and uh, selfish way. They see the person next to them not as someone to cooperate or participate with, but instead to lash out against. Today, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, what I think you'll see after I develop it here over the next 32 minutes or so, is that, in fact, we all struggle with fear. You see it, even if you don't admit it, at least in our symptoms. I think a lot of times when we lash out or respond in ways that we wish we hadn't, it's actually driven by fear. And the reality is, if, if, you got, if you're like me, you know, I don't really think of myself as necessarily a fearful person. In fact, as a guy trying to be a manly man, it's something I'd never want to admit, right? I'm not afraid. I'm not scared. What? You know, that's what we call yeller belly or chicken or coward or something like that. And that's not really attractive in my mindset. So I don't, I don't necessarily think of myself as a fearful person. And yet, there are a lot of things that I would never want to happen, right? That's the way I might say it. I wouldn't say I'm afraid. <laughs> so I'd never want something like this to happen. For example, um, we think of things that we may not call fear as something that might potentially ruin the day. Well, I wouldn't want that to happen. That's going to ruin the day. Ugh, I won't like that. It might ruin not only the day, it might ruin the weekend. It might not only ruin the weekend, it might 
ruin the trip. I mean, what if we were to get sick right before we left on our vacation? That would be the worst. I don't want that to happen. So I'm doing everything I can to wipe down the counters and take my vitamin C. And Why? Because I'm afraid. I don't want to get sick on my vacation. There are lots of things we fear. It's possible we may fear that someone else could find out. We could fear that they will know that I'm not actually fill in the blank. We could fear being alone. We could fear someone we love being hurt. And even worse, we could fear being the one who hurt them. We could fear being paralyzed. We could fear being maimed. We could fear being disabled. We could fear being unemployed as a result and ending up as a liability to our family. I would never want that to happen, would you? Of course not. You want to be making your family care for you. You want to care for them. As a result, what happens is when fear comes into the picture, it comes out in the wrong ways. And there's something that we are afraid of, and therefore we have to protect something else. And in order to protect it, we'll fight to do so. Then, like a pack of dogs, we lash out and bite. So fear is a real struggle. It's one that we all face. But the good news is, even though it's a real problem, there is a real solution. In the next few moments, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to show you the problem, the solution, and the application. The problem is fear. The solution is faith. And the application will be how you renew your mind to prevent fear. So Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bible, uh, I'll go ahead and read those verses. They'll also be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one. We have blue Bibles in the back. Uh, on your way in, you're welcome to pick one up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep one. This is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. The Apostle Paul says this, um, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he he nearly died For the work of Christ, risking his life to complete was what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's happening here is you've seen a bunch of commands throughout uh, the book of Philippians. Do this, don't do that. And then 
as the Apostle Paul provides a command, he also provides an example. Earlier it was Jesus, then after that it was him. Now there's two guys by the name of T and E or Timothy and Epaphroditus. These are the examples of having the mind of Christ. Now I myself, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is how did Jesus stay emotionally healthy? This question is coming to my mind over and over again for a number of reasons, but I think it's a significant one because Jesus faced all, not just some, all of the major crises in life, yet still somehow was able to maintain his mental, his emotional, his spiritual, his relational uh, energy levels, and, and a healthy perspective the whole time. How come he never, ever, ever had a meltdown? Why don't we ever see him just saying, that's enough, I'm done, done, no more, slam the door, I don't care, leave me alone, <laughs> I'm done. We don't see it. Why? I think, after giving it some thought, and I'm yet to be convinced otherwise, that for Jesus, the way he was able to do this is by a word, and I'll flesh it out here in just a minute, and that word is this, is simply by faith. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? You just said by faith. That, that's nebulous. It's like a cloud. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't touch it. I have no idea what you're talking about. What I mean is this. Jesus believed in the most absolute and concrete way in two things. One is God's goodness, and the other is in God's control. He had to absolute absolutely unwaveringly affirm God's character. This is who God is. God is loving. God is kind. God is merciful. God is just. And this is what God can do. God is powerful. God is unstoppable. God has everything under his control. He's working out his plan. He won't be thwarted. He won't be distracted. He won't be disrailed. He will accomplish his purpose. Then what you do is you take those two things and you mold them together that God is good, God is for me, God loves me, and God is all-powerful, God is in control. And when you have those two things together, then those overwhelm whatever it is that's in front of you in life. Because Jesus could maintain his faith, he believed that God was in control of all things. Even when he's being crucified on the cross, God's still in control. He believes that God's still righteous, even though he has never, ever sinned. And yet he's dying for other people's sins. He still believes that what God is doing at that moment is right. And that eventually God will vindicate him, raising him from the dead and exalting him in glory. Jesus unwaveringly affirms God's goodness, his mercy, his vindication and his love. And as a result, he can unconditionally submit to whatever God places in his path. That's huge. If you can get to a point where you say, I believe you so much, God, that I know everything you do is good. Whatever comes before me, I'm just going to walk through and trust. You're unstoppable. I think that's what Paul was doing in this passage and what his friends were doing as well. When you look more closely at it, you'll see in Philippians 2, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 24, the same sorts of words keep popping up over and over again. And they are these. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus. I hope and I trust. Over and over again, there's this underlying or undergirding theme of joy, faith, hope, trust. I believe by grace, through faith, that God is good. The problem is, if you don't have that faith and you don't have that trust, you don't have that hope, there's a very real possibility when you look at life that you'll say, yep, in this instance, I'm going to come out on the short end of the stick. I am uncertain because I don't know. I am uncertain because I don't have control. I don't know and I don't believe and therefore I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being taken advantage of and as a result, what I have to do is protect. And as I protect, I look out for me and myself because I believe that no one else will. And when people cannot trust, and when people become protectionistic like that, then what ends up happening is they snap at each other. So when you see these symptoms in your life, here's an application for you, church. Ask yourself the question. Sometimes we go to just the surface level, and we say, oh, I'm just being selfish. It's just because I'm a person. But actually, that selfishness may be driven by something deeper underneath, and that something is fear. What is it you're afraid of? I'm afraid of this ruining the day. I'm afraid of this ruining the weekend. I'm afraid of not having enough. I'm afraid of... And then you start to protect and you guard that thing. Watch, for example, children who fight over ice cream and who gets how many scoops. Don't you dare give him a teaspoon more than my brother. Boy, what? It's okay. I'm your father. I love you. I'm giving you ice cream. (laughs) Why are you fighting over this? Watch young people vie for popularity and attention to the pain of their peers. Why? Watch adults jockey for influence, sway, and position. Watch corporations become embattled over contracts and nations go to war over territory. And who gets how much? Why? Because we're all afraid. It's not just that we're selfish. We're afraid. We're afraid. Who's going to protect us? Where's God in all of this? Where's the God who rejoices over you with singing? Where's the God who gave his only son? Where's the God who fights for you? If he's not there, then there is only fear. But, for those who believe, God is in control, and he will vindicate the righteous, then everything is going to be okay. And everything's okay, it means I don't have to protect. And if I don't have to protect, that means I can sacrifice. And that means I can genuinely become selfless. Why? Because there is a hope that even if I give up everything I have now, the future will still be better. Because I believe, I trust. I know that God will pay me back even if I suffer injustice now. Therefore, I have hope. Now, I'm not the best example, but there are some really great examples of this. Philippians 2.8, Jesus, we said earlier, truly believed, he trusted. And so he wasn't afraid. And as a result, because he wasn't afraid, he was able to humble himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul, in verse 17, 
is being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And Epaphroditus, in verse 30, nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In other words, all of these examples did the exact same thing. They trusted God so much so that they said, even if I'm wronged, even if I lose everything, even if someone else takes advantage of me, I am going to trust and believe that God is good and God is in control and therefore whatever I give up now is going to be okay because I'll be paid back in the end. In other words, they overcame fear with faith. The problem we face is fear and the solution is faith. Look what John tells us. He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Do you want to know what the victory is that gives you victory over everything in this life? Faith. Faith is a victory that gives you complete victory over everything. If you give that up, you've got nothing because there's stuff that's going to happen that you can't control and then it's over and it's done. Kaput. You lose. You aren't going to win the game every single time. So how do you get through this life? The only way is by grace, through faith. If you don't have that, all you have is fear. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So the problem is fear. It, it shows up in selfishness. These two guys are examples of unselfishness. Why? Because they're unafraid. The problem is fear. The solution is faith. Now, I want to give you the application in the next few moments. Some very real ways in which you can implement this into your life. But to get you there mentally, I want to make a comparison. It may seem kind of odd at first, but I think you'll get it. And it's this. Humor, fear, and faith are interrelated. They're actually very, very similar. Humor, fear, and faith are almost the same, but for a small deviation on each. And this is what I mean. When you talk about a good joke, I can't just come up with one right away. I wish I could. That would be great. But humor is something that there's this little bit of truth that we all recognize, and all of a sudden, there's a twist, right? And that twist makes it funny, and your mind sort of instantly picks up on that. So, for example, I don't know, a Super Bowl commercial. I don't know if you guys saw the one where uh, it was like a Geico or something commercial where something was happening to these individuals, whether it's a pop can exploding or walking into the glass door or what, getting the paper cut. And it was so funny. Why? Because we've all experienced that little itty bitty experience but what the marketers did is they took that and sort of flipped it on his head and turned it into a good thing and that seemed so awkward to us that we just had to laugh and laugh and laugh they they took this little tiny bit of truth they twisted it and it became funny that's humor well and because for example if, if if i said something to you that didn't have any truth in it it really wouldn't be funny you'd just be like Okay, that was weird. You know, what did you just say? But because it has a little something there, not too much. If it's too much, it's offensive. <laughs> but if it's got just a little, then it's funny. 
That's humor. So take humor and then take, for example, uh, fear. Fear does the exact same thing. It takes something that's slightly or just a little bit true and then it twists it. And what happens is, just like in humor, when your mind instantly sees it, in fear, your mind instantly goes down this path and you say, well, if this happens, then this happens, and then this happens, and all of a sudden you've gone, crash, and you're way, way low because you've just instantly followed this path of fear. It's taken a little tiny thing that actually is true, maybe something you don't like about yourself or something you don't like about somebody else or something you don't like about your job or the reality of your existence in some way. And it's taken that and it's twisted it. And now you're in trouble because you're afraid. You've gone down this path. You may not be shaking, but you can't sleep at night or you're anxious or you're reacting in ways that you don't like to other people. Why? Because fear has got a hold of you and twisted some tiny little truth. Now, it's only taken a tiny bit And what happens is, if you see where you've ended up, it's nowhere close (laughs) to what this is. That's what fear does. And so, the way to overcome fear is by faith. And the difference is, what happens is, it's really interesting because fear takes a little bit of truth and twists it and it becomes big. But oftentimes, in our faith, there's this huge pile of truth, right? Here's the Bible. It's ginormous. And you look at this little piece of fear truth, and it's very, very small. And yet, the irony is we can see the tremendous implications of our fear, but we can't see the implications of our faith, even though the weight of what we have in our hand is so much greater. We have this huge piece of truth, and we're not even paying attention to it or noticing it or listening to it, there's a little tiny piece of fear and we're all wrapped up on it. We're like, oh, and we follow that path. So, what the apostle tells us to overcome fear by faith is by the renewing of your mind. It's taking this body of truth and going squash to that thing over there. It's not saying it's necessarily not true, but it's fighting the fear with faith and believing what God has said over what all the other things, voices, people, or whatever are saying to you. So you fight fear with faith. You fight it by the renewing of your mind. Let me show you where he says that in Romans chapter 12. Apostle Paul says, this is how you do it. Because, I mean, if I were to stand up here to you this morning, I'd say, okay, fight fear with faith. Just believe. Increase your faith. (laughs) Increase my faith. How in the world do I do that? Like, do I have a button or knob on my sleeve that I can just sort of turn up? No, faith increased a little bit today. Great. (laughs) No. You do it by renewing of your mind. Let me show you. Romans chapter 12 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present... Oh, look, this sounds so familiar. To present your bodies as living sacrifices. What did Paul just say in Philippians? I am being poured out as a drink offering for your faith. Hmm, interesting. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, who almost died. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's how you worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? How am I transformed? 
by, this is the means, this is the means of transformation. This is how change comes. By the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is and what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the solution to the problem. Problem is fear. The solution is faith. The application is by renewing your mind. Now, let me be very clear here because I think we as, you know, North Americans, we kind of go one way when we hear this. We hear, oh, renewing my mind. I get it. That means just suck in more knowledge, like acquire information, read another book, and therefore I'll know more and it'll work. But any of you who've ever tried that would probably raise your hand and say, I don't know, I read these four books and it hasn't gotten any better. What's going on? And what's happening here is the renewing of your mind is not necessarily an adding of more knowledge, but instead it is the killing of the old lie. It is overcoming evil with good and error with truth. So, for example, let me give you some of the lies that could be the root of your fear. Here are some lies that are frequently fed to us in a number of different ways. Number one, it is basically this. This life is better than the next. Like this life, is, this is as good as it gets, right? You may hear yourself say that. I got to do this now because this is all there is. You're acting like an agnostic at that point. This life is better than the next. No, that's not true. Riches are better than rewards. If that's the case, then I need to keep, I need to protect, I need to hoard because, look, money can solve my problems, right? My car's broke, my house is broke, my this is, my that. It would sure be helpful. Therefore, hold. Popularity is better than persecution. The smooth, easy, nice path is the way for me. It's way better than bumpy. Ease is better than struggle. Are those true? I think we prefer those. We often lean that way. Our actions seem to say so. But what does the Bible actually say? Here's this little piece. Here's the big piece. What does the weight of Scripture say? Scripture says this, that in fact the opposite is true. Rewards are better than riches. If we really knew what we had coming in heaven, we would gladly give up everything we have in exchange for it. Eternal rewards are way better than riches. That persecution is actually better than popularity. Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness sake and people say all evil manner of evil against you. That's a good thing. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. That's better. The bumpy road is to be preferred to the smooth. That struggle is better than ease. It is way better to be on the straight, narrow, difficult, dark, up and down, mountainous path of perseverance and faith than on the smooth, easy, breezy, wide road of riches to destruction. In fact, the truth is that eternal life is better. This very week, someone won one of those big Powerball things, some super duper hundreds of millions, and I clicked on the link and immediately under it, you know what it had? 
had all these examples of people who are either committing suicide or murdered or whatever, and statistically, it does not look good for you if you win the lottery. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> you may not want to try that. This person was fighting hard for anonymity because a lot of the murders that actually occurred within the family. Real murders, not just, I want to murder you, like, no, I hate you so much, I'm so mad, I'm going to kill you. Eternal life is so much better. That is why the Apostle Paul says here in Philippians throughout the whole book, as we draw to a close, this is what he says. He says, hey, you who are servants of Christ Jesus, live as citizens of heaven, not as citizens of earth, but citizens of heaven. Advance the gospel. Stand firm, stay tight. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility of mind, consider others better than yourself. As Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, live by faith. By grace through faith. Not that we can do it, but that He who called us is capable. That's why later you're going to hear in a couple chapters, you know, that famous verse 413, I can do all things through Christ. And we hone in on that, I can do all things, because we're like, yeah, pump up. Don't forget the second half. (laughs) And that's right in the midst of his suffering. And notice that his best friend Epaphroditus is about to die and Paul can't heal him. Does that mean Paul doesn't have enough faith? Not at all. It means he can do all things through Christ, even if God kills my very best friend. The problem is fear. The solution is faith. And it's accomplished by renewing your mind. Overcoming evil with good, error with truth taking the great weight of Scripture and letting it pounce upon all the evil invasions of untruth that come into your life from other people, from media, from yourself, from inside, from anywhere. Overcome evil with good. Therefore, I tell you, church, do not, like a pack of wolves, be anxious about your life what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body even when it hurts, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Instead of being like a pack of wolves, be like a flock of birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being afraid or anxious, can even add a single hour to his span of life? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, or what will come of us if we do or don't? But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Father, we thank you and praise you. 
for your perfect plan for our lives. And Lord, I confess, anytime I get upset, anytime I fail to trust, anytime I feel worried or discouraged, Lord, it's probably a sin of not trusting you. I pray, God, that you would increase my faith and that I would trust you through that process, that I would overcome evil with good and fight error with truth and hang on for dear life. God, overcome our fear. Provide us the solution. Increase our faith. And may our minds be renewed in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.